Uh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us a boldness and a courage that is not of us, but is of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, we are in Acts chapter 16. Uh, last week, we um, talked about some uh, heavy stuff, and I feel like, unfortunately, it well, didn't get cut early because I had to go and I was late for church. But, um, and you do know, every, as I'm running, people say, they'll wait on you. They never wait on anybody. I don't know if you've noticed that. Like, they will start without you. And... Um, so if you ever see somebody kind of creep out from the side, then that's, that's because they were late and uh, might as well just creep out from the side. Um, okay, uh, they, I, I'm going to go ahead and open up for those of you that listened last week. If, if, you wanna, if you have any follow-up questions for me, we were talking about the unity of the church and uh, whether or not anything's worth breaking up over. You can always email me or give me a call. Um, that way we can have a little bit more time uh, to talk about it. So think about that. Okay, so this week, uh, the Jerusalem Council has just happened. Uh, they've decided, you know what, um, this is ridiculous. If you have a Gentile believer, to have them be circumcised is uh, putting an uh, unbiblical burden upon them, uh, and it's even being elevated to the level of salvation. Uh, now, there's a difference between that and the missional aspect of it, which we're going to see in Acts 16, that uh, certainly you don't want to put stumbling blocks in front of, uh, of people and uh, put stumbling blocks of the gospel in front of people uh, because the kingdom of heaven is not about eating and drinking, and yet if we're not careful, the kingdom of heaven can be about eating and drinking, right? It can become easily behavioral. So let's look at Acts 16, um, beginning with the first verse. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. The disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews uh, who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way throughout the cities, they delivered to them, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. The word of the Lord. Okay, so we're gonna, we see here a model of ministry that has been, for the most part, hopelessly lost in the church. And that is a relational model for ministry, actually being friends with people and investing in people's lives. Um, we see in this passage that uh, Paul is able to identify a young guy who's got it together, who's a believer, um, but has him circumcised, of course, because he's going to be amongst the Jews and, and to remove that as a stumbling block. And uh, that is an obvious indicator that Timothy's he's vested. You know, he's, this is a serious commitment for him. He's in. And then uh, beyond that, they begin to preach the gospel and they begin to see uh, results. Well, uh, one of the things that we've uh, talked a lot about here at the Advent over the past couple months is this image of the vine and the trellis. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that and then talking about how that relates to this passage. Um, uh, in churches, uh, well, let's just start with the, with the image. Um, you know, if, if I've actually seen this happen before, where you go to a house and uh, there's a vine overwhelming the trellis and it's pulling it off the wall, and, and you think that needs a little bit of trellis work. But I've also been to houses that have this beautiful trellis uh, in the backyard, 
but there's nothing on it. Now, whether or not um, they're like the Pearsons and just killed it or, uh, or whatever it might have been, or they just never planted anything, but it's this beautiful, well-maintained trellis. Uh, but it's not serving uh, the purpose for which it was built, right? It's, it's just uh, the focus is on the trellis when, in fact, you build a trellis for a vine. And in the same way in the church, if you want to look at the work we do, there's definitely trellis work that has to be done. If the ministry is getting big, you've got to work on the trellis work, the infrastructure, the things that are going to support the ministry and allow it to grow. And sometimes you've got to stop tending the vine, which is our priority, right, to tend the vine, uh, but uh, to deal with the trellis that's coming off the wall. Uh, but for the most part, our job is to nurture and to tend the vine. Most churches focus exclusively on trellis work. They just do. Uh, why is that? Because it's easier. Uh, it's just a whole lot easier. One of my favorite things uh, in my life is uh, mowing the grass. Uh, and why? Because it's pretty much the only thing in my life that produces tangible results. Like, my kids aren't getting any better. Um, uh, I still make the same mistakes in my marriage that I've always have. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, pastoral ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, right? So, I mean, these are, these are sort of, these are intangibles, and it's, it's really nice to actually have something in your life, and uh, it's just so satisfying. I'm looking at Leland Hull, oh, to be a dentist. Uh, how, how awesome is that, to be able to look at this mess and then take everybody's money while you're chiseling, you know, just sort of the double whammy. So, um, it, uh, and for a lot of us, I mean, you may have a job that, that does that. Like if you're in construction, I mean, you start with this empty lot and you do the excavation. And you, I mean, eventually, you know, right now we're renovating the girls' uh, bathroom. Uh, and it's, you know, Lauren just finds so much joy in seeing the little bit of work that they do every day. I resent them. Uh, but uh, Lauren uh, loves it. And it is, I mean, it actually feels like, okay, this is worthwhile. We're doing something. But when it comes to people... It doesn't work that way, does it? I mean, very rarely are we actually able to see tangible results in the lives of individual, uh, individuals. And uh, if we're going to actually uh, see uh, those results, one, uh, we need uh, conversion, right? We need the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, Timothy has uh, been converted. Uh, his mother was Jewish. He became a Christian. His father was a Greek. Uh, he's not mentioned. Uh, and I don't believe that his father was a Christian because later on in 2 Timothy, uh, Paul reminds him, remember your mother and grandmother who passed on to you the Christian faith. Now, I, that's significant for a lot of reasons. One, I mean, how many of us became Christians because of the ministry of a mother or grandmother? L don't show your hands. Lots of us, right? Lots of us. And so Paul's mother clearly... Uh, invest in him. And this is one of the hardest things to do as a parent or even as a grandparent uh, is to, uh, uh, I don't even want to say pass the Christian faith along, but they don't learn it by osmosis. They don't, they don't just catch it. It's not like the flu. Um, in fact, uh, they, uh, in family dynamics, uh, they're often uh, very resistant to it. I mean, some of you uh, have tried mightily uh, to evangelize your children and grandchildren, and it almost seems like the more you try to share your faith with them, uh, the farther and farther away they go. But it's a little bit like marriage, too. So I'll be talking to Lauren, I was like, oh, I, said, I, met, I talked to so-and-so at lunch, and, and they said that this is something that I should try doing in my life. 
And she just kind of looks at me, and I can almost see fury in her eyes. She goes, I've been telling you that for the past 10 years. Um, but it's new to me, right? It's new to me. So sometimes <clears throat> right, it takes somebody from, from the outside, but we know the seeds of the gospel have been planted in Timothy's life by his parents and, there's no, and uh, mom and grandmother, and there's no higher calling in life than that uh, to do that. I mean, it is, um, it's an overwhelming thing, and uh, there are lots of ways around it. But if you want your children to know the Lord, again, put your trust in the Lord himself. If you want your grandchildren to know the Lord, you got to invest in them, right? It's not just, okay, now I'm going to tell you about Jesus, uh, then I go back to my iPhone, right? Or it's not, uh, I'm going to tell you about Jesus, and now go outside and play. Right? It's actually investing in the total person in the life uh, of the child. And it's the same with adults. It's the same with adults. And yet when it comes to investing in people, especially as it concerns uh, discipleship, and when I say discipleship in the church, um, a lot of people think of it in, in terms of the trellis and not the vine. So they think of discipleship as some program that we have in the church or it's something that you do. But in fact, discipleship is primarily about relationships. And Jesus shows us what this looks like in his own life, how he's constantly doing what? He's going up to people. Come and put your nets down and follow me, and I'll make you fisher of men. And then they do it. They just do it. Uh, the woman at the well. Come and see a man who's told me everything about my life. You see it in the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, come down for I'm going to your house tonight. You know, Jesus didn't say, well, you know, a little food for thought. Um, or, hey, Zacchaeus, if you want to come by my place, where, which he didn't have a place, but I'll meet you at the temple. Um, that, that'll be fine. Uh, but in fact, Jesus uh, was constantly on the go. Why? People. People. He didn't stay in one place. I mean, there are lots of nice places in, in Israel that he could have stayed, like Caesarea Philippi, and said, Come unto me, all ye who want to hear it, because I'm not going anywhere. Um, but he didn't. He was constantly on the go, for the Son of Man didn't even have a place to lay his head. Why? Because he was interested in pursuit. And that's true of us, too. C.S. Lewis's testimony is pretty remarkable, and uh, he talks about his conversion. And uh, although it felt like it had come upon him suddenly that he was a Christian, uh, he talks about the fact that throughout his entire life, he said, it felt as if the hounds of heaven were nipping at my heels. Right? Which means what? God is interested in pursuing you and does pursue you for relationship. And it's not just, okay, now you're Christian, good luck with that, and off he goes. Uh, but in fact, continues and abides with you. That's why he uses in John that abide, uh, apart from me, you can do nothing, but abide in me. Abide in me. Uh, be in relationship with me. That's why we use the language of being in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means to be in relationship with him. It means a whole lot of things, which I don't have time to unpack this morning. Uh, but it means that uh, he has sought you out and he has saved you. Now, it'd be very easy for us to say uh, and write to say, well, that was easy because Jesus was God in the flesh and he's just attractive, and he is. But what about me? You know, it's uh, remarkable to me how intimidating it is 
to actually build a relationship with somebody, uh, much less to actually walk alongside them in Christian discipleship. I mean, this is especially hard for men. I mean, I hear Lauren and I hear all kinds of girls on the telephone saying, well, what are you doing? And like sort of spur of the moment things. Men don't do that. Like men just don't go to a store. I mean, we, like, we go in, get what we want, and we only, you, one syllable, bass Weegians. <clears throat> and then you get them and then you leave, right? That's, that's what you do. Um, and, uh, but uh, women, this is just, I think, part of their nature. It's, uh, it's more intuitive. But, you know, men, it's sort of like, you know, it's this awkward, what are you doing Friday? It's sort of like a middle schooler asking a girl out on a date. It's really awkward and really strange. But even as uh, we get older, it's not that much better. And in fact, in Beaufort, South Carolina, there was a young uh, Marine captain uh, who was a believer and uh, was um, a Christian, uh, great guy, young, married, uh, was trying to figure out the whole Marine Corps thing. And, um, and so we had in Beaufort a retired four-star Marine Corps general. Uh, and uh, uh, really, there are not very many of them, so if you looked it up, you'd find out who it is pretty quickly, and is very accomplished. And um, I thought, you know, what a great thing, because the general is this godly Christian man uh, and really has a heart for uh, the core still. Uh, he still has that look, and, um, and it, wouldn't it be great if he would disciple this guy, this young officer? So I took him out to lunch, and um, I said, General, I would love for you uh, to spend time, maybe have lunch once a week, every other week, just talking about Christianity with this young Marine Corps officer. And mid-bite, he just stared at me, and he couldn't say anything. And he put his fork down and said, I don't think I can do that. Now, this is a man who won uh, a medal for pulling someone out of a burning helicopter in Vietnam, who's afraid to have lunch with another guy. Right? It, it really, and, and the more I talked to men, uh, the more I found that how intimidated they were to do that, and yet how badly individuals, men or women, how badly they need these relationships for people to come alongside them in the difficulty of life. Well, why are people so fearful to do this? Well, one, they don't think they have anything to offer. They think, what do I have to offer? Uh, we often shortchange God. Uh, we think that God hasn't given us uh, gifts, and we end up looking into ourselves. We navel-gaze a lot, and we think, I'm inadequate. And you know what? That's true. We are inadequate, but greater is He that is within us than he who is in the world. Right? So God is going uh, to equip you, because you don't feel equipped. Uh, you don't feel like you have the arrows in the quiver to disciple people, to invest uh, in their lives. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's a, you know, the thing about relationships, and I, I always, it's hard for me not to think about it in terms of, of dating relationships, because when I was in my early 20s, right before I met Lauren, uh, I was talking to my grandmother, and she was asking about a girl that I had previously dated, and, uh, and, and then she said, well, was there anybody else in your life? And I said, no, there's this one girl, and she kind of likes me, but she's not my type. My grandmother looked at me, and she said, Andrew, any woman that's interested in you is your type. <laughs> well, there actually is, within all of us, a desire. We, 
I mean, we, we really do want people to be attracted to us, and we do want people uh, to invest in us. Now, that can be scary because it does uh, require a uh, great deal of sacrifice and vulnerability. But before we get to that, uh, the bottom line is that we're all called to do this, right? For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Uh, if anyone would come unto me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow me. Uh, and this following Jesus is not a solitary event. Even though he pursues us individually, the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. It's not meant to be compartmentalized. It's, now, what does it mean to live a Christian life? It means that your faith uh, is so, it saturates your entire life. It touches on everything. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, you're going, you know, you know, I, it's a, I'm dreading the day that Lily gets to that point in school where I can't do her math homework. Right? That's, uh, and so I'm not one of those, you know, two plus two equals Jesus. Uh, that's not it at all. Uh, but there, you wonder, well, how do some parts of, how, do, how does my faith impact certain parts uh, of my life? And it's normally in the smallest of ways. And even your struggle to wonder how it impacts that part of your life means that it's probably already being impacted uh, by the faith uh, that is within you. But one of the greatest hang-ups about this is that relationships, and especially in terms of discipleship, uh, require a great deal of sacrifice and vulnerability. Uh, Jacques Maritain said once that community exists for the rescue of person. That's our job as a community, uh, and yet that idea has largely been lost. I've talked about before that uh, in our world, uh, those spheres of influence, those places in which we look to for support and, um, and encouragement, uh, your, your immediate home, uh, your neighborhood, and the church, those latter two are largely gone, aren't they? I mean, even in our community, uh, I mean, how many people really know who their neighbors are uh, beyond uh, their name? Uh, that is just a cultural phenomenon that has uh, been lost. I mean, I realized that when I lived in Washington, D.C., people drove like nuts on the road. Uh, they just, you know, are sort of uh, more passive nuts here in Birmingham, but they are very aggressive in Washington, D.C. And, and I just thought it was amazing that people would treat other people on the road that way. But then I realized, well, if you never know who your neighbors are and you're only going to live there for four years, then what difference does it make how you treat anybody on the road? Right? And so in those transient communities, uh, that sense of knowing community and knowing your neighbor has been largely lost. Um, and um, now some of you are sitting there thinking, I wish I didn't know, know my neighbor as well as I do. Um, but... Uh, but also, you know, the church uh, has lost uh, that sense as well, especially caring for our individual members, uh, regardless of where they are in life, uh, actually being invested in caring about what's going on in their life. And there's a company out there that is making a lot of money exploiting this missing space. Starbucks. When's the last time you went to Starbucks and actually saw somebody just drinking coffee? It's become the family room, the study, the community center of the world. Right? That's where you meet people. That's where you have conversations. Uh, that's where you get an overpriced cup of coffee. Uh, that's where you, uh, you do work. I, you know, I see people in there working 
uh, all the time. It's now become the closest thing in our culture that's an extension uh, of uh, our home. It's the new community center. It's the new, um, it's the new neighborhood. And so within the church, I'm not sure that uh, there's any plan or program that we can implement where we are able to regain that. But even in a Starbucks kind of world, it's clear people desperately want that. Uh, and they're even willing to pay $5 for a cup of coffee to get that, right? And so how uh, much more healthful and helpful and even salvific uh, if the church had that kind of care and concern for those that are outside of our walls. So that's why William Temple, the former Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II, he said, we're the only club that exists for those who are not members. And so it's relationships. Now, you can't go through your, <coughs> you can't have, uh, you can't have too many of these. Right, because then it becomes trite and you can't possibly maintain these types of discipleship relationships. And they, a lot of it does have to do not just with the Lord, but with chemistry. You know, there are times when it's just sort of like, I mean, you know that person, you know, you go out to dinner with them a few times and you think, I'm never going to be that close to them. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a judgment, but there's just not, you're not sinking that way. And then there are people who you go out to dinner with them a couple times and you realize for better or for worse, they're going to be my friend for life. Right? That's... And so when you find yourself in those moments, you can only have so many of those friendships, right? Actually, there, there's a lot of research about how many friends you can actually have. So if you're on Facebook, you actually can't have that many friends, right? They're not your friends, right? It, it just, it doesn't work that way. And so Jesus himself models this. What you see is Jesus spent a lot of time on his own, right? A lot of time speaking with his father. And when was the last time you and I had solitude? And I, I mean, as close as it gets as you might get in the car and turn the radio off. But even then, you're distracted by driving. But how uncomfortable is it for us just to sit in a quiet, even if it's someplace nice, a quiet place and just think? And you've read and I've talked a lot about the articles that say that, you know, the fact that our creativity levels are absolutely crashing because creativity comes from boredom, right? But instead of just sitting and waiting for the elevator, what do we do? Right? That's what we do. I mean, if, uh, you know, it's, I mean, when's the last time, you know, I, this is one thing that drives my family nuts. I can go to the beach at 8 in the morning and I'm shutting it down. I'm there all day long. But if I were just sitting there, I'd go crazy. I would go stir crazy. Uh, and so we have a really hard time actually being quiet because it actually forces us to think about really important things. And so do you know what even secular psychologists will say why we don't like going on vacation? Because it makes us think about our own death. Now, why is that? Because when you're on vacation, you start thinking about your own importance because it turns out the job, the company, actually can function without you. Just when you, think like the, just when you think the world can't function without you, take a nap. Take a nap and see what happens. Time marches on, and that's, that's hard for us. But also in those quiet moments, you actually have to think about your own significance and even your own insignificance in life. And so Jesus, not like that, but Jesus saw the importance and is a model for us to go 
and have solitude. But not just that. Jesus, he had his 12 disciples, and then he had the, you know, the 70. He had the multitudes. Uh, but within those circles, he had what? Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John, who he took directly under his wing and showed them things and invested them in them in a way that he didn't do with the other ones. So it was Peter, James, and John that uh, were with him at the transfiguration. Uh, and, and when he revealed uh, his glory and throughout uh, the Gospels, uh, you, you see that those are his inside uh, guys. Those are the ones that he's really going to uh, and investing in. And it's not necessarily at the expense of, uh, of the others, although we do see some jealousy, um, especially when um, uh, the sons of thunder are, you know, the mother says, I want you to give my sons uh, one at your right hand and one at your left. And the disciples didn't like that one bit. Um, and I get that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Jesus uh, had a way. He just really cared for people. That's a very rare gift to actually... If you had a chance to hear Ken Elzinger preach this week on Monday and Tuesday, he's one of the few men that I've ever met that when you're in his presence, that's really the only thing he cares about and thinks about. Like you were the most important thing to him uh, in that moment. And somebody asked if I had him as a professor, and I said no, because if he had been my professor at UVA, he never would have come to the Advent to preach. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but here he was. And he's just such a quiet, um, humble man who really does care about you. I mean, in the, in the same way that Jesus actually does care about you. I mean, we can really get caught up in the sort of Sunday school conversations about, um, you know, if you've ever been part of a small group, which is a great way, if you're looking for a relationship like this, for someone to come alongside you and, and to be involved in discipleship, small groups are great. But if they're not marked by that sacrificial and vulnerable love, uh, then you're just hanging out, right? You're just hanging out. Why? Because it needs to be marked by, by honesty. It needs to be marked by self-awareness. Because if everybody's just sitting around and they say, how is everybody's prayer life this week? And everyone says, amazing, amazing. It was just, I mean, I actually moved mountains and, uh, and uh, everything went great and every prayer that I had, uh, the Lord answered. Now, that's never, ever going to be true, Right? And yet, so often when we get around other Christians, that's, we, get, we start speaking Christianese, and that's, that's the kind of stuff that comes out. Rather than being in an environment like the disciples, because that's the thing about Jesus, is that you could actually be who you were in your brokenness. And that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be times when he drops the hammer. We see that with the rich young ruler, right, where he had to push on the bruise. But then we see people who are absolutely flat out out there. Right, so we see that with the woman at the well. We see that with the woman caught in adultery. We see that with Zacchaeus. Knowing all the baggage that comes with them, Jesus can see us as we are and knows that, you know what, though? The thing is, is that you've got just as much baggage as the rich young ruler. He thinks he's got it all together, and he's projecting. But the fact of the matter is, we're all in the same boat. And, uh, and there's, there's a lot of comfort in that. Uh, but... Finally, uh, what I would say about this is the way that Paul and Timothy uh, have this ministry, uh, this last verse. Uh, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. 
do we have an expectation that God Himself is actually going to move in this place? Do we have an expectation that Jesus Christ is actually going to transform your life? Do we really believe it? I'll admit sometimes I don't. Sometimes I wonder, well, God, where are you in all of this? Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. I mean, what we see time and time again in the Scriptures is that God's arm is never too short to save. And even the shortest of prayers are answered. Peter, as he was walking on the water with Jesus, starts looking at the waves, starts looking at the storm. He, starts, he begins to sink and he prays. He cries out, Lord, save me. And in God's mercy, he does. Now, I don't often pray with the spirit of expectation. Now, I often judge people by their cover. Now, I look at some people who are not Christians, and I think, they're that close to becoming a Christian. And then it turns out that the guy that I thought would never become a Christian, the one that paints his fingernails black and was really weird in college, he is now the pastor of a PCA church, of course. Um, and uh, that's just the way uh, that, that God works. Are we putting God in a box and telling Him what He's capable of doing and what He's incapable of doing? Uh, Paul and Timothy model for us and show us that, this, that they're without borders, that your job is to simply love on people and to pour out the Word like water and pray that the Holy Spirit changes it into wine. Questions, comments, concerns? I know y'all drink Starbucks, so come on. Yeah, I'm not against Starbucks. I just, I don't, I actually don't like it. It tastes burnt to me. So Lauren got very upset when we were dating, and I was like, well, do you want to go get a cup of coffee with me? And she said, yeah, and we pulled up into Bojangles. And, uh, <clears throat> and I don't talk about Pepsi. There's a place in Myrtle Beach, by the way, uh, actually it's Pauly's Island, south of Myrtle Beach, where coffee is a nickel. Sam's hot dog stand. It's terrible, but it's only a nickel. The, the other thing that I, that I think has affected the church over the years is that, you know, we look at it as a consumer. Right. And we walk in and we go, am I going to like the hymn? Am I going to like the sermon? You know, what's it going to do for me? Right. Instead of the attitude of this is my church family. Yeah. It's, and it's, I get to be part right. of this wonderful body Yeah, it's, of it's worship, right? Yeah. It's worship. So it's not actually, I mean, you're going to be blessed in worship, but it actually has a whole lot more to do with with God than it does with us. And so we're not, uh, we're not simply passive receivers, or as you said, Nina, consumers. But, um, and, and God does show up. And I, I mean, I'm guilty of it too. Like I got upset this morning because the, an the anthem during the offertory went on too long. Uh, so I'm sure Fred really loved the fact that I kept saying, hurry up. Um, I didn't do that, but I thought it, I thought it. Your sermon was pretty long too. <laughs> It just felt long. It just, yeah, that's Lawrence, that's Lauren's famous quote when I told, y'all know the story, when I, I was preaching once and I said, well, it was kind of long. And she goes, no, it wasn't long. It just felt long. <laughs> Thanks, David. We need a new microphone guy. No, it, uh, yeah, you know, normally I, you can go on morning prayer Sundays up to 18 minutes, but if you noticed, we had 50,000 announcements and all that, but I don't feel bad at all about how long my sermon was. <laughs> 
I am going boldly. All right, y'all. All right, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.